0: Karl Barth was the Swiss born Protestant thinker that Pope Leo XII called the most important theologian since Thomas Aquinas. Translating theology into physics, Barth to Aquinas would be Einstein to Newton, to English literature, Faulkner to Shakespeare, to art, Picasso to Michelangelo, and to government, Winston Churchill. To Elizabeth I. Science, literature, art, and government must be more important than theology. Everyone has heard of Einstein, Faulkner, Churchill, and Picasso. Until I went to seminary, I had never heard of Karl Barth. In Aquinas' day, theology was thought to be the highest and most important of the sciences, Regina Scientiarum, they called it, the Queen of the Sciences. To make that point, Aquinas quotes Proverbs chapter nine, verse three: "Wisdom sends her maids to the tower." Aquinas knew that it was true that some other sciences can be more certain of their subject than can theology, but even so, he said they are the handmaidens of theology. The other arts and sciences have to do with aspects of the world and life. Theology takes in all those aspects, and it solidifies their connections and deepens them, and it speaks to their origin and goal. That was in the Middle Ages. The Enlightenment was, was when the handmaids got together, stormed the palace inter-sanctum, and overthrew the queen. When Thomas Jefferson, a great son of the Enlightenment, founded his University of Virginia, he declared a, professor of, a professorship of theology should have no place there. Newton, Michelangelo, Elizabeth, and Shakespeare, but not Aquinas, would be taught at UVA. That is why I hadn't heard of Bart. His science had been dethroned, and that is Christian theology. A dethroned science reckoning with the mystery of a thorn-crowned king. Jesus stands before Pilate, who represents Tiberius. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers enigmatically, you say so. Some soldiers pick up that theme and twist some thorns into a crown for an impromptu farewell moment of humiliation. Hail, King of the Jews, they joke. Jesus or Tiberius, who actually is in charge of this scene? Ladies and gentlemen, place your bets. Karl Bart also faced off against an emperor, one almost as mighty as Tiberius, and unlike Tiberius, rotten to the core, Adolf Hitler. Bart lived and taught in Hitler's Germany, and in 1934, he published the Barman Declaration that defiantly opposed the Third Reich. Christ is our king, it said, not Adolf Hitler. Barth lost his chair as a professor of theology and was expelled from Germany, and some of the other signers of the declaration lost their lives. Bart believed that Jesus Christ means hope through hell and high water, for all of humanity, all of it, best and worst. Who is the worst person you can think of? I'll say Hitler, because no one quite that bad had ever held such power. But aside from that, he's really not that unusual. Probably we could think of someone just as bad on every city block. Their hearts are hard set against the grace of God. Thinking of a man like that, Bart describes him this way God is for him, but he is against God. God is gracious to him, but he is ungrateful to God. God receives him, but he withdraws from God. God forgives his sins, but he repeats them as though they were not forgiven. Bart makes no bones. He calls such people devilish possessed, and ruled by Satan. Satan was not a joke to Bart. He was both myth and fact, smoke and fire. He was the sum total of the evil, men and women do, but he was more than that. Evil has a mind of its own, purposeful, implacable, and dangerous. Like, Like Hitler, dangerous, but bigger. The likes of Hitler And that worst person we can think of on our block are its minions. Bart said that the situation of this person is futile. We've all heard about that proverbial Japanese soldier hiding out on an island cave 10 years after World War II has ended. He fought on, not knowing that the war was over and his side had lost. Rejection of the grace of God and Jesus Christ, Bart said, is just like that. So Bart sees that person, Hitler and his like, as powerless before God. Now, in Bart's day, it certainly looked like Hitler had a lot of power, and compared to Bart and the six million Jews he killed, Hitler did. Bart was no fool. He knew full well Hitler's power in his own sphere. Likewise, Jesus well knew that Pilate holds him in his power. What Christ represents is the existence of a realm known to faith in relation to which Pilate, Hitler, and the devil himself are toothless. The devilish soul, Bart explains, is but the shadow of a real man or woman. Real life starts when the truth about the world and life is finally recognized. That's when we start to live. The shadow men and women not only cannot resist the truth, they can't help being drafted into its service. Just as in the passion story, Judas, Herod, Caiaphas, and Pilate all have important roles to play in a drama to whose plot they are oblivious. The truth has a mind of its own purposeful and powerful, miraculous. Bart puts it this way. The love against which a person such as Hitler maliciously and perilously transgresses reduces him to the weakness and insubstantiality, the shadowy existence of a life that wills to challenge the truth yet actually cannot do so. But can only bear reluctant witness to the truth. What is God going to do with a man like that when he dies? Hell? Eternal death? Eternal life in purgatory without possibility of parole? What does Hitler's nemesis, who is called the most important theologian since Aquinas, say to that? Bart imagines the wicked soul like Hitler on the cross, scourged and mocked, getting the punishment that by all rights he has coming. There he stands, the man who is hostile to God, ungrateful to God, withdrawing from God, repeating sins already forgiven, and therefore enslaved and accursed. There we see the sin and death of the man who is overpowered by Satan and has become devilish. The penalty, then, is death. But as we all know, it isn't Hitler or anyone like Hitler who is being sentenced. It is Jesus. Where evil belongs, we find grace instead. This teaching of the Christian faith is as old as Scripture. Christ died for the ungodly, said St. Paul. It came to be called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Before it was articulated as a doctrine, it was expressed as a metaphor. Lamb of God, they called him. Before it was expressed as a metaphor, it was experienced as forgiveness by Paul, Peter, Mary, and many others who felt in Christ a love that was undeterred by their own or anyone else's moral failure. And like the truths of mathematics and physics, the grace of God is real before it is discovered and experienced. Truth. Experience, expression, the attempt to articulate the truth is doctrine, which is experienced, expressed, articulated. That is the cycle of Christian theology. Was the crucifixion necessary? Maybe or maybe not in the absolute sense that two plus two necessarily makes four. Only God could know if there is an eternal law of retribution by which sins and crimes must be punished, and punishments must fit the crimes, I couldn't say for sure. We can say for sure that insofar as there is a price to pay for sin, God himself has paid it for the world. But there is more to these events than law and logic. God is an artist and a story writer and a ruler too, like Michelangelo, Faulkner, and Churchill. There is much art, there is as much government as there is science in his method of redemption. Through the gospel story, he speaks to the world in a language that every single one of us can understand. C.S. Lewis was challenged by someone who thought he was staking too much on a gospel he couldn't be sure was true. Lewis replied that if he was mistaken in his faith, he hadn't lost a thing except that he had pay- paid the universe a compliment that it doesn't deserve. The story we sing and tell this morning is to be sure a compliment to God. But why should we believe it? You've heard me say this many times paraphrasing Bart. God does not convince us to believe in him by arguments. He persuades us by giving us joy and gives us joy by being beautiful. Aquinas also saw and felt the beauty of the gospel, but he appreciated reasons as supports for faith. There's no fault in wanting reasons to believe in God, so I'll give you four. One, our faith explains why science has a world to probe and ponder and why against the odds the universe is hospitable to life. Faith makes it clear why the world is intelligible to science, why it answers back with meaning. Aquinas worked those ideas into his proofs for God's existence. Two, our faith sustains Thomas Jefferson's belief in rights to life, liberty, etc. It's in light of faith that this country and the things that we most value about it makes sense. And apart from faith, they actually don't. Three, faith gives us reason to believe in our own moral responsibility, that intuition we have, that the way that we live and act, it actually does matter, and that we are answerable to a truth that is outside of ourselves, and in fact, a truth that's outside of the opinions of our fellows. Immanuel Kant worked that into his proof of God's existence. And four, our faith in Christ sustains belief that God is powerful and good, notwithstanding our encounters with evil and our periods of suffering and trial. Soren Kierkegaard shaped that idea into a paradox, that the suffering and death of Christ are the basis for our trust in love's invincibility. There is more reason in Christian faith than there is in its denial. I feel confident that in saying that I stand on solid ground. On ground that Aquinas, Kierkegaard, Kant, and Jefferson also stood. So God puts it to us to make the choice for faith or not. Christ stands at the door and knocks. Open your heart. Say the prayer. Invite him in.